things have been changing since we all first met back in the good old days uh, when there was no doubt but what we were a, a resort community growing into a destination resort community and, and really thought primarily about growing our business year round. Uh, I'm going to ask you to focus on the right hand side, the community side. Most of our, com most of our resorts are one part community and one part resort. The ones who have always been around, sort of started out as a community, have that foundation in place. They tend to do a better job on a year-round basis, have a community, but that community deserves its own considerations, increasingly so, as that community is augmented by second homeowners and retirees and folks who all pursue lifestyle that they could only do at one stage of the game by taking a vacation. Now you can buy a second home. You can move there as a retiree. You can make it your vocation. Um, at least most of us think we can and are still trying to test that theory. So there's been shift on the community side, but on the left-hand side, so it's the same kind of shift in resorts that when I first started, you know, was a day ski area looking for some lodging and has continued to move in that process. No surprise to you all that as these two groups coexist in the same space and resources become limited, there's some healthy competition for things like beds. You know, for example, maybe the fishing hole or the parking lot or the air inbound and out. And the highest best and best use often goes to she or he who can pay the most. Those who are economically independent of the local community end up winning that prize often, which creates a dilemma for all of us, right? Whether as a lifestyle or, or as part of the workforce. So we've got some new forces at play that we need to be able to recognize and deal with, and this is intended to illustrate that. This is just a little snippet, and it turns out to be equally true for our destination guests, our second homeowners, our retirees, and most of us locals. So I'll give you a moment to, to read it because it really speaks to the kind of the denominator of, of why we all find ourselves uh, here. The cart or the horse, if you will. So at one stage of the game, and up until recently, our focus has been entirely on the destination guest, uh, our research, our marketing, et cetera, et cetera. Now we're seeing tourism as a means to a solid economic sustainable year-round community for us all. And it expands the conversation, not just to the destination guests, but to the workforce, the residents, their value, the second homeowners, and an increasing number of retirees, the combination of their force, and their political influence shouldn't be underestimated as we need to uh, really accommodate this broader group. So when we bring this down to the kinds of problems that destination marketing organizations are facing, we're faced with that, that acronym, DMO, to begin with, which implies that's what we do, destination marketing. But the problems are changing. The challenges are changing. Most of the easy stuff is taken care of, so it requires both public and private collaboration, which means we have to be similarly informed, right? A good source of data that is credible and actionable, shared by everyone, is a good step in that direction. And we hear people talking about sort of an M&M metaphor. It's not just a destination marketing organization, because sometimes we find it more appropriate to be managing the guests who are in-house, especially during peak seasons. We talk about raising our valleys and taking the pressure off our peaks so we have a more sustainable community for all concerned and a better quality of the service for all concerned. But that doesn't happen without some pretty good premeditation and a different paradigm than we had, have in the past. So sometimes we'll hear somebody talk about a DMO, but they're thinking destination management. It can include marketing, but it's not just marketing, right? 
It's what's needed at the time to balance the economic scenario for all of the stakeholders, and that's the scenario that we find ourselves in these days. So since I was here, let's see, I've been here a couple of times now, and uh, it usually takes a couple of years for folks to get over me, you know, and invite me back, but you guys, this might, might be my third year in a row, gluttons that you are. Liza and, I, Liza and I started talking a year or two ago about how we might cobble together, you know, some data in this direction, even though there isn't always the funding available necessary. So we've been working behind the scenes to put together a, what data do we already have? How can we use it? What other data might be interesting that we ought to be messing around with and trying to check out? And we're trying to build a puzzle that has a picture by adding pieces until the picture becomes clear. We have some of those pieces now, more than we did before, and today will be a day where we share some of those pictures, uh, some of those pieces. We don't yet know that the picture exactly fits. We're going to have to mess around with that over this next while, to the extent you think it's a good idea and support those efforts. So the objective is to, is to make better use of the data that informs both ACRA and its member constituents try to figure out the additional resources that complement the, the puzzle, and then figure out how to interpret and apply the data and tell that story and put it to work in a way that you get it. I'm not the guy that does the best job about collecting or analyzing the data, but I usually get the clicker when it's time to tell the story. Uh, and so I will be helping a little bit in that context and taking advantage of the, 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 the smart guys uh, in the room uh, for the rest of it. So there's a sort of scenario that you see at the bottom that moves data to something that's actionable and valuable. This is not just me. This is kind of generally accepted procedure. So I've built a little model, a little metaphor uh, that, that suggests that we're going to put together and organize this data once it has turned into information that has been informed and is usable. You know, it's consumable in the process. It's a pretty simple metaphor. There's data sources, and for purposes of this conversation, you know, we can look to my, to my right. And there's data users, and for purposes of this conversation, we can look to the balance of the room. Pretty straightforward. Let me make it a little more complicated, because that's what I do. Uh, legacy data sources, the ones that you have used in the past, uh, include the stuff that comes from the city, uh, transportation. Um, you have been working with RRC associates for many years on the qualitative side of the data and continue to do so. You've worked with MTRIP and Destimetrics, and they are shown up in leg legacy data sources. Recent data sources uh, are some of the work that RRC is doing and some of the new players that we have here uh, that have been involved uh, for a year or two's time. And then there's obviously the macro industry data. So what we'll be doing uh, for the balance of the morning is taking advantage of these pieces of information by asking each of their authors to tell you a little story, taking into account much of what we've been able to cobble together so far for that process. Uh, the other side of the scenario, the fact base, are the users of the data, and it turns out those are most of you in the room. I want to be clear, if I haven't already, that ACRA is our client, but their use of the data is for their own purposes and also, I think, should be distributed to others in the room who can use the data for their own purposes, right? Not only you members that are lodging properties and do your own marketing, but the other organizations, and I've just made some sample examples of others who might have in common the same data source, and as we use the same fact base, more, we're more, more likely to come to the same conclusions together. So that's my tee up to how things have changed, how we're trying to assist you in specific and in general in putting data to work more successfully, and tees up my opportunity to recognize the presenters so far. So you see, organized and wearing pretty much the same faces as their pictures would indicate, 
Uh, Tom, <laughs> well, and in some cases, maybe not so much. <laughs> uh, Tom Foley already made uh, reference to, who's taken over Destimetrics with Entopia. It's now called Entopia Business Intelligence. His responsibilities are greater than that, but today he continues to talk to you primarily from the Destimetrics product in the Entopia family. I'll let him further introduce as time goes on, because he's first up. Kellen Cruz, uh, wearing a, uh, a really attractive goatee and smiling just about the same way as in his picture. Uh, Director of Business Development, AirDNA, if you don't know, is an offshoot of what started out with Airbnb. They made it their job to try to pull the data that Airbnb collected and make sense of it. That was in the early days, at least as I saw from the grandstand. That has moved on, as time has to really doing uh, uh, an exemplary job of pulling that data out and now uh, adding the Expedia HomeAway VRBO set of data with promises of others, helping us figure out the what I used to call the gray market. Maybe it's the rent by owner. Interestingly enough, that whole part of the world calls it short-term rentals, as if hotels and condos aren't. Yeah, well, that's one of the problems we have with this growing industry is a confused lexicon about what we mean when we say what we say. It makes it easy for me as a presenter. Uh, Dave Becker, been around since the beginning of time. Probably the first guy that I ran into that really deserves to be called a data scientist uh, and has been invaluable in many of things that I've done, as I know he has for you as well. He'll be talking about the two parts of the RRC research. And Matt Clement, on, on uh, your far uh, right, has, has, is, is kind of, the I think, the gee whiz guy in this equation because his organization has been able to take advantage of new technology to do some things that haven't been on even on the radar screen so far. Uh, and it represents some opportunities both in the short term and long term that I think you'll be interested in learning about as time goes on. So that takes care of my prepared comments and I'm going to invite Tom to come up and share uh, the show. Mr. Foley. This equation is important. The circumference of a pumpkin divided by the diameter of a pumpkin equals pumpkin pie. Off we go. Uh, I'm going to change around what we would normally do. As I said, I'm going to talk about the forces that are in play in the data that we're seeing. Uh, and some of this touches on things that other experts are going to talk about. And I'm going to start out by talking about the economic forces that are in play right now. You can read what's up here. We'll take a look at really the three metrics that we take a look at and, and what we're thinking about when we look at economic forces. And the reason we look at them is because what happens in financial markets and what happens in employment markets dictates what happens in consumer markets and everything about us is what's the consumer feeling, what's their tolerance for spend, how confident are they feeling about the environment and so forth. The Dow Jones actually is sitting very strongly right now, over 27,000 points. The problem that we see right now is that it's traveled about 15,000 points up and down over the course of the last year. That's almost twice as much as normal and it's only gone up about 1.7% from where it was last September. Right now, about 8% from where it was last October. That's because last October it dropped almost 2,000 points. So there, there's concern there, and that means that there's economic uncertainty. That in turn impacts consumers. And consumers are doing the exact same thing. The consumer confidence index is going up and down. It's going all over the place. But if you look at the graphic here, it hasn't gone anywhere. It's still strong, but consumers are now starting to say, we're worried about the future. We're worried about our earnings. We're worried about what we're going to do with discretionary dollars. And that reflects itself in rate pressure that we see as we try to get the same sort of rate growth that we've seen in the industry over the course of the last decade or so. Lastly, I bring jobs up here because they also very directly, <coughs> excuse me, impact consumers. 
And the jobs market, anybody who's been trying to hire knows that it is interesting. At 3.6% unemployment right now, there's not a whole lot of people out there in the workforce who are looking for work and and in specialty work that's even tougher to find. The problem with the unemployment rate right now is that while it stays stable, it is hard to hire, but from a consumer point of view, job creation is slowing down pretty dramatically. So I wanna talk about some of these things. I pardon the speed, but we've got time limits. So this is a look at volatility over the course of the last three years. The line is just a representative pattern of the number of months in the last six, or the percentage of months in each of the last six as we move across time, in which there's been a greater than 2.5% swing in financial marketplaces. So it's gone up since 2016. It dipped down, it's settled, it's now gone way up, and it's continuing an upward trajectory of having these monthly swings that are really dramatic in percentage points. And we look at percentage points because they're measurable versus absolute number of points. So this is a concern, and this is what's making consumers, whether they know it or not, a little bit worried about what's going on in the future because they don't feel momentum in the economy. The other is job creation, and we keep hearing good numbers about job creation. They are good numbers, 136,000 jobs added last month. That's great, but it's trailing downward slowly. The long trend that we've seen since really 2010 in positive job growth is starting to trail off. There's a point at which the economy can't generate new jobs and new jobs don't generate an economy and that starts to balance out in weird ways. So those are things that are impacting consumers right now and we'll see a little bit of that impact in the data in just a minute. Uh, The other thing that's at play when we look at what's happening is inventory, professionally managed inventory in mountain communities. We take that into account because of course if inventory increases it's harder to make your year-over-year occupancy if it decreases it's easier to make and you don't have to get as many reservations. And that is the uh, underlying qualifier as to whether or not you're overperforming and underperforming in occupancy. It's not the reason, but it's one of the things you have to look at, all other things being equal. So industry-wide, the inventory across the West has barely moved, less than one-tenth of 1%. It's been very stable year over year. In Aspen, it's been relatively stable, about one-third of 1%. And in Snowmass, we've got new inventory, base village, and that's a significant change, and so that's having an impact. So if we take a look at what that looks like, room nights available year over year, the left hand of each data set is this year's inventory, the right hand is last year's, and the yellow dot represents the year over year percent change. And so you can see that the industry in Aspen on the two sides of this are pretty stable. Snowmass has had a considerable increase in inventory. We all know that that's the development, and that is going to have an impact on Aspen's business acquisition, consumer acquisition. It's a bright, new, shiny object, the other side of the valley, right? So those are things that attract consumers away from necessarily your market. Next up is dynamic inventory. And and really, Kellen's gonna be the expert on this and talking about it, but we need to think about inventory dynamically. We can't just think about what's available. When we do our transient inventory study and we tell you there are 4,008 units in Aspen and Snowmass, and that includes Down Valley, those are professionally managed units, and it's 19,500 pillows. And we know that for a fact. We do a pretty good study about that. But there is a couple things going on. One is a normalization of the rent by owner marketplace, which is a terminology that I use. Some people call short-term rental. Some people call it Verbo or Airbnb. But it's rent by owner. And the other is the dynamic way that those two types of inventory interact with each other. So this isn't meant to be representative, but pretend that that blue sample is the 4,008 units and that's professionally managed. We know all about it, we know how it performs, and properties report to us, and that's great. And on the right-hand side, we've got this new, which isn't all that new anymore, inventory in the form of the rent-by-owner marketplace. But it really looks more like this. 
right? You've got exclusive rent by owner on the far left, and they're only done through professionally managed uh, management companies. And on the far right-hand side, you've got the rent by owner market that only is sold through Verbo or Airbnb or other markets like that. And in the middle, you've got the overlap. And that's the part that's hard to tell, but it doesn't look like this either. It looks like this, because units are jumping into and out of the inventory constantly, and that middle piece is really hard to understand. So when we start measuring these things, we have to think, okay, we know what this professionally managed unit did, we can infer what the rent by owner unit did, but we don't know whether or not we're double, yeah, feel free, me, come on through. I'm one of the most interruptible people, I really am. <laughs> So we don't understand what that middle piece of inventory is doing. It's very difficult to understand what it's doing because you gotta be able to reconcile those things that are available on both marketplaces and where did the transaction go through. So Kellen's gonna have a lot more information on this, but it's just something again to contextualize so that you guys are tracking what's going on. And then average daily rate, and this comes back to the consumer. Average daily rate is up 2.7% at the industry level year over year for the summer this year compared to where it was last year. The cost of living is up 0.8, it's 0.8% higher than the cost of living, which is up 1.9%. That means relative to the increase in, in everybody's everyday lives, it's a little bit that much more expensive to come to a mountain community during the summer. If you're coming to Aspen, it's 7.7% more expensive this year than it was last year, right? And that's a 5.0% difference versus the industry. That's a big change now from what people are experiencing in their growth. So now it's relatively more expensive this year to go to Aspen than it is to do a lot of other things. So there's a question about that. And what pushback do we get from the consumers based on what we see there? This is the trend that we're seeing in occupancy, ADR, and RevPAR. The bottom line is occupancy levels year over year, long view going back to 2016, and how that is coming down close to flat. The line above it is rate coming down close to flat. And the line above that is revenue coming down close to flat. When you get to flat, what do you do? Because all the tools in your toolbox about what lever you can pull to drive consumerism start to vanish from a room rate point of view. And you have to start thinking about value adds, what you can do to enhance the guest experience. And from a local perspective, how does the community want to think about where they're positioned? Yes, Aspen is an elite product. It's always been traditionally higher than the rest of the industry. It's got a rightful place there. The question is back to consumer tolerance. It's not a rhetorical question. It's one that you should be asking yourself. So quickly moving on to a different version that people are, are accustomed to as far as our performance, just looking at summer, May to October 31st, across the industry occupancy, you can see the numbers up there. The red indicates a year over year decline in occupancy. Why do we call it out red? It's the first decline in any metric for the aggregate summer season that we've seen since 2009-10. So we're, 9-10, or so 2010, sorry. Yeah, I was thinking winter, yeah. So that's a concern after, but there's a couple things about it. Is it because summer was such a meteoric growth that it's leveling off or are we running into some intolerance from consumers? There's more research required to understand that completely. So we take those industry numbers and we stick them up there and we put Aspen down below and we're putting green where Aspen overperforms the industry. We're putting red where it underperforms the industry. Uh, summer occupancy in Aspen was down 2.5%. The industry was down 1.2%. Other than that, everything else was up. And in the end, the bottom right corner and the top right corner are really the goals, positive revenue growth. The question comes down to how do you want to get it? Do you want to get it on the backs of occupancy? Do you want to get it on the backs of rate? 
or do you want to get it on a combination of both in balance? That's the best world, because then you get two levers to pull if you have to. Stick snow mass up above. Nobody's surprised with these numbers either. And it wouldn't be me if I didn't get into this quickly. So with only just a little bit of time, what I've done is on the left-hand side, we're now looking ahead at winter. And this is something that we, we think is really important to take a peek at. Left-hand side is made up of three data sets per month, Aspen, Snowmass, and then the industry. Looking at October on the far left of the chart, over to April on the right, and then the winter aggregate. This is all on the books transactional data. And right now we're looking at occupancy levels. And the most notable thing here is looking at January and February and March, snow mass occupancy, outpacing both Aspen and the industry. Uh, and then on the right-hand side, we're looking at year-over-year -year percent change in occupancy. We shouldn't be surprised to see that snow mass has a pretty good year-over-year -year change in occupancy, given the new inventory, the attractiveness of that inventory marketplace, and the pressure that's being put out there. In the end, right now, snow, uh, Aspen is down 7.2% on occupancy year-over-year -year for the winter. Uh, snow mass is up 8.6. The industry is just about flat at 0.6. What is notable is this is early days. So that's the grain of salt that we put with it because small numbers can inflate these year-over-year -year changes. Taking a look at rate, I don't think there's any surprises on the left-hand side here either that Aspen is more expensive than snow mass in the industry. That's a pattern that we would expect to see. Year-over-year -year change in rate, once again, we're seeing that Snowmass has an opportunity to lift up their rate dramatically from where it was last year based on a lot of that new inventory. But Aspen is overperforming both Snowmass and the industry on rate on the books for the winter season. And the big shot is looking at revenue. As, as presented by year-over-year -year change in RevPAR, and we've got Aspen down just slightly 1.2%, Snowmass is up, the industry is up as well. So it is early days, there's some balance to be made, but this is a change in typical patterns. If we were to go back and look at long-term views, there's that long view report that we produced for you guys, and take a look at how these two destinations, Aspen and Snowmass, have compared against the industry, we'd see that this is a change. And so that's interesting. Part of it might have to do with some of that rate tolerance we were talking about, um, what I was talking about about consumerisms. Some of them has to do with changes in inventory and marketing, um, uh, marketing efforts around the destination. I think I was at 12 minutes. You are at 12 minutes. Hot dog. <laughs> takeaways, I won't bother going through them all. The, the punchlines of the takeaways are in bold, and then a few details underneath it. With that, that is probably one of the fastest I've done. Um, you can get hold of me here. Kellen's next up. Thanks for your time. Uh, so I'm from AirDNA. I'm director of business development. I run our destination business. Uh, we work with about 250 tourism partners, um, just like you. So there's a lot of like names that have gone around, even in this short uh, presentation so far, of what is this sector? What does it mean? And hopefully I'll give you a little bit of indication of what that um, overall sector is, sizing, and then I'll go through a little bit of a case study on Pitkin County and Aspen. So what I'm showing here, $600 billion is the size of the hotel market. Uh, there's been just an expansive growth, explosive growth in the short-term rental uh, market. It's grown 300% in the past five years, and now it's 17 cents on every dollar spent in accommodations. This is uh, just an indicator of that. So 10 million properties across 80,000 markets. Uh, AirDNA focuses on uh, using web scraping capabilities. So 
think about how does Google uh, find information on the web? How do you find show times for you know, a particular town you're in to see a movie? AirDNA uh, is trying to expose the same kind of analytics toward the rent by owner market. So we scrape every Airbnb, every HomeAway, and every VRBO property every day, uh, 10 million listings, and then we're trying to find some sort of method, and we've, we've found some success in that, to provide a lot of the same data points that, that Tom mentioned. So ADRs, occupancies, rev pars, market sizing. And so I'll go into some of those details. But this is just a good indicator of how much there, there has been growth in the past three years. So 140%. So one of the toughest things that, that our company found in initially trying to understand this market was what is a, what is a reservation versus what is a blocking? So if I, if I go out to Airbnb right now and raise a hand, show of hands of anybody who's used an Airbnb before or a home away. So if I go to search for Aspen and I'm looking for a property, to the naked eye I can see very quickly what's available, what's unavailable. And what Tom had kind of, had kind of mentioned before is when it gets a little tricky is trying to understand what's a reservation versus what's a blocked date. And that supply and demand shifts greatly day to day, week to week, month to month. There's a seasonal component. But what I'm indicating here is we, we took uh, some reservation data that we were able to get our hands on, um, about 30 million reservations back in 2015 of Airbnb data, and we were able to build an algorithm to now look out into the future and say, for Aspen, for Los Angeles, for New York, what does that market look like? How many reservations were there for a particular month for a particular property? What are they booked at? What's the pickup rate? And then what days is that owner in the unit and is it not available? And so we're able to use data science uh, to try to solve a similar problem that many others in the industry have looked to solve. So back in 2014, Airbnb had really launched and taken off in 2011. There was explosive growth. You know, it had become a, a household name. Once I heard my mother use the word Airbnb or Uber as a verb, I knew it wasn't going away. <laughs> and Scott, our CEO and founder, very similarly saw an opportunity. And, I, and I'm happy to say, you know, being here for now two years, we were 15 employees when I joined in, in 2017. We're now 60. We've seen a huge explosion. We've kind of jumped on that tail a little bit. But as we've moved along, data science can't cure everything, and we've run into much more complexity. So what used to be one property on Airbnb is now being displayed on VRBO, on Homeway, on Booking.com. Even Marriott has a Homes and Villas site. So what you're looking at here is one listing in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Looks very much the same across the board, but it's different. It's being listed at different prices. It's got tons of complexity. And one of the efforts we've spent a lot of time on, and, and Ralph kind of alluded to this, was trying to find some sort of way to deduplicate that and ensure we're not double counting. And as Tom mentioned earlier, there's certainly still, a, a, in that Venn diagram, there's certainly still a piece of it that's, that's got crossover. And we're, we're working very hard to try to understand that more and make sure that we're not uh, double counting across websites and then, of course, across the industry. So to talk a little bit more about this space for us, so AirDNA sells data and performance metrics to the rent by owner user, the host, the property owner, the investor. And there's about 10 million homes, 5 million 
people operating them, and about two rentals per operator. Our goal uh, today is, of course, to provide those data and analytics to the individual user. That's about 60% of our business. We've built a really nice uh, software as a service tool online called MarketMinder to help with that. The other 40% is what I focus on, the destination marketing organizations, the hedge funds, private equity clients, investors, enterprise businesses who are spending $500 or more a month to understand this, this business. And ACRA, of course, is one of those clients. So quickly, some of the, the, the key performance metrics and the, the key uh, competitive uh, dynamics that we can offer, one is market intelligence. Where are the properties? Where are they located? How much are they offering uh, per night? What's the ADR? Occupancies. Of course, in a, in a world where the supply is shifting and that denominator of total available uh, properties is constantly shifting, we're really trying to keep our eye on the prize and understand the true occupancy and only counting occupancy if a property is truly available. And that's where data science has really helped us. Benchmarking. You'll see our trend report here, which looks very similar to a star report. Uh, this is for Pitkin County. So we're offering, uh, you know, trying to look each year, sorry, each month, year over year, to understand the movements uh, of all of these metrics from RevPar to ADR, uh, revenue, et cetera. Guests. So we've tracked every review that's been left on Airbnb for seven years. What we can do with that data is to take each profile of that self uh, that self-described profile and connect it to the property that that guest stayed in and that's a rich data set to uh, folks like ACRA to understand better where guests are coming from and do a bit of guest attribution. Demand outlook, pickup rate. We can look six months out based on real actual data by scraping those calendars on Airbnb. We can see how many of the 1800 properties in Pitkin County, how many are available for Labor Day weekend or for the, the next big music festival. And just in summary, we're looking at property locations. We're looking at the, the areas that these properties are most popular. Where are they popping up and going away? Sizing analytics, tax revenue and optimization is a, is a big one now. And then of course, competitive benchmarking. What does Pitkin County look like to neighboring areas or other uh, tourist destinations? And I'm gonna do a quick, quick um, run through of Aspen. I was going through a dry run with my wife last night, and she said, what, why is the C? What is the C? And I, and I, I, I did struggle with showing this. So the, the C itself is a market grade. And this speaks to what uh, facts and data, and as Ralph alluded to, fact-based decision-making can do. So what that's looking at is a, an overall investment profile of Aspen for the next uh, potential investor. As you know, it's very, very hard to invest here. It's expensive. And so there's an investability rating of 10, which gives us a C ranking because for the next property that you're, uh, marginal property you're looking to invest in, this might be a tough place to do that. Also across the top, we'll see tiles of ADR of 605 for October, occupancy of 39%, which is just uh, a bit low of the 59% um, high in August. And then you can kind of see the heat map and then also rental channel where the property is mostly being, being displayed. And in this case, mostly even between Airbnb and VRBO, about 35%. 30% of all property managers are uh, channel managing. This is a quick view of the guest origin data I mentioned. 
We can look at the top 10 of domestic versus international origin cities. We can even see the social media presence and languages spoken. Snowmass gets an A. So anybody from Snowmass? <laughs> ADR not surprisingly a little bit lower. Occupancy of about 45%. And similarly, and this is very unique uh, to AirDNA, we're, we're generally have been very popular in big cities, urban outlets where Airbnb really came on the scene and created a new market. And so quite honestly, ACRA is a really exciting client for us because it's helped us to work with people like Tom and Ralph to try to better understand a market that is being channel managed. You see the 30% Airbnb, 35% HomeAway, 35% channel managed. That means that that Venn diagram that Tom showed earlier is really in full play. And then quickly the top 10 cities of, of Snowmass. And then just a quick view of, of our trend report and how we kind of show and, and uh, try to display that data each month. Thank you. So I'm um, going to talk about uh, two different uh, studies that we're doing for ACRA at the moment. Uh, the first is the Summer Visitor Intercept Survey, which has been ongoing for several years. And the second is a arts and culture economic impact study. So first, uh, with regards to the uh, Summer Visitor Intercept Survey, this has been ongoing uh, since 2006, every two to three years. This is the seventh iteration, and there were actually iterations even prior to us being involved. Uh, it involves talking to visitors primarily in downtown Aspen. Uh, timing is typically from Memorial Day to um, <clears throat> end of September, early October. Sample sizes in the range of 600 to 3,500 each year. Uh, trying to make the data as representative as possible by month of visit and by weekday, weekend of visit. Um, there is a margin of error in the data, and so you do see some a little you know, variability year to year. You can't put too much weight on you know, small changes, but instead what we're going to focus on are kind of those broader changes over time, how have things shifted <clears throat> or stayed the same uh, since 2006 and also going to talk about some of the ways in which Aspen is relatively unique compared to other Colorado Mountain resorts. So uh, looking at uh, the origin of visitors across the four U.S. Census regions, with Colorado broken out separately as well as international, you can see some shifts over the past 13 summers, a bit of an increase uh, from Colorado, probably not surprising given all the growth in the state. Uh, a bit of a downtrend in both the Midwest and the Northeast, and a bit of an uptrend uh, internationally with Latin America being one of the steadier contributors to that, to that growth. Uh, the South has been uh, relatively stable over time. Um, if you look at Aspen compared to other mountain resorts, in general, Aspen attracts a longer haul traveler, so less of a drive market, less visitors from in-state, less visitors from sort of those adjacent states in the Midwest and South, so Kansas, Nebraska, Missouri, Iowa, Oklahoma, less of those visitors make it to Aspen. A lot of them get intercepted by other resorts which are closer to their place of residence. Uh, so going one level uh, deeper into the top 10 states and countries, um, <clears throat> a bit of a dip over time from uh, New York and Illinois. A lot of the top states have held relatively stable over time. Uh, and again, uh, Aspen tends to be stronger in some of those more distant states. 
uh, California and especially Florida, uh, uh, Aspen does uh, really quite well compared to other Colorado Mountain resorts. Um, this is a bit of a diversion, uh, kind of looking at the distinction between visitor days, which is what most of this presentation covers, and unique individuals who come to Aspen. So we just kind of look at the far left and kind of look at Colorado. You can see that Colorado accounts for 26% of visitor days to Aspen, where a person just spending one day counts as one visitor day. A person on a five-night trip is five visitor days, five visitor days. And you can see that Colorado accounts for 43% of those unique individuals versus 26% of individual or visitor days. So it's mostly, you know, there's some marketing and implications from this. And, you know, depending on the data source you're looking at and the analysis you're doing, you might look at one or the other. But uh, there's clearly an important uh, variation depending on how you look at that um, geographic origin by metric. Uh, day versus overnight visit. So we've defined overnight visitors as people staying the night somewhere in the Aspen to Glenwood corridor. And you can see on the top that those overnight visitors account for 92% of visitor days in Aspen. Day visitors account for 8%, highly steady over time. The lower two chart, the lower chart looks at the same data from the standpoint of individual unique people coming to Aspen. And you can see that day visitors account for 28% of those unique individuals. Uh, turning to age and particularly generational cohort, uh, you can see there's definitely a passing of the torch with the baby boomers and older generations, you know, phasing out and strong uptake by uh, millennials and uh, Gen Z increasingly too now. Uh, so that's encouraging given the cost of Aspen that, you know, that younger generation is able to pick up the slack. In terms of income, uh, some, some, you know, ebbs and flows over time. There's some survey methodological issues which can affect this data. But uh, in general, a high degree of stability. Not surprisingly, Aspen tends to attract a more affluent visitor profile, a higher concentration of visitors in the 200,000 plus income group. Um, you do see a high degree of repeat visitation to Aspen. So about 40% of Aspen visitor days are attributable to people on their first summer visit to Aspen. 60% have been to Aspen before. The share of first-time visitors is actually a bit high in Aspen compared to other resorts. Probably not surprising given that people have to come further to Aspen uh, compared to other resorts. Uh, and then if we look at seasonal crossover of previous winter trips to Aspen, most folks have not previously visited Aspen. 59% have not visited Aspen in the winter. Um, 40, roughly 40% have. And then kind of tied in with the uh, sort of greater geographic long haul uh, travel associated with visitors coming to Aspen, you do see uh, the importance of flights as a mode of travel to get to Aspen. On average, over the past several years, about 60% of visitors have flown as part of their travel to Aspen with uh, Aspen Airport accounting for a little over half of that flight traffic. DIA being uh, very important as well. Some folks flying to Eagle Grand Junction, a relatively small share. And then you've got 40% uh, traveling by ground. Uh, relatively, you know, some volatility again, but generally those patterns have stayed in the same ballpark 
over the longer term, there is a more fly emphasis to Aspen than you see at other Colorado mountain resorts. In terms of primary reason for choosing Aspen, a wide variety of reasons uh, led by sightseeing, recreation, climate, visiting friends and relatives, uh, restaurants and dining, shopping, arts, music, and culture. Obviously a whole variety of offerings. Many people participate in multiple different activities as we'll see in the next slide, but clearly that's one of Aspen's strengths is just the uh, smorgasbord of offerings available which can attract a variety of different visitors. And this illustrates some of the activities that uh, visitors participate in, dining, hiking, moon bells, gondola ride, among the more popular activities. Um, so this will touch a bit on what Tom and Kellen were talking about, a couple of slides about accommodations for those overnight visitors. So historically, about 7% of overnight visitors to Aspen have stayed in Aspen proper, another 3 to 4% at Highlands or Buttermilk, about 15 to 20% stayed in Snowmass Village, about 10% staying down Valley, relatively stable patterns over time for these. In terms of the accommodations mix, on the left-hand side, we've got that rental lodging segment, which um, <clears throat> has been about 60% or so, 57% of, uh, of the lodging mix this past summer. So this is what Tom and Kellen were focusing on uh, including the hotels and the rental condos, as well as the individual bedrooms in those rental condos. On the right-hand side, that remaining 43% stayed in unpaid lodging this past summer with 19% uh, staying with friends and relatives who live in the area, 15% in second homes. There has been an uptrend over several years in campers, tent campers, 5% this summer. Also a bit of an uptrend in RVers at about 3% this summer. Uh, so kind of turning to sort of people's experience in Aspen and how they would evaluate that, you can see that most folks are very confident that they'll come back to Aspen in the next three years. 70% say they're extremely likely to come back. In practice, it, you know, we see from past patterns of who the share of first time versus repeat visitors that probably not all of those 70% will in fact come back. So that's obviously a challenge to, they have the desire, how can you sort of uh, logistics and sort of mechanics of that decision to ensure those repeat visits actually occur. Um, and then just in terms of an opening question, um, what, okay, what, uh, are there any comments you'd like to share about your experience? I would say the two main themes to sort of come out of this are affordability uh, related to lodging, restaurants, uh, shops, as well as uh, transportation, local transportation issues, traffic and parking especially. So now we're going to just quickly touch on the arts and culture study. Uh, this is a um, <clears throat> study designed to look at the economic and community impacts of arts and culture in Aspen Snowmass. It's jointly sponsored by ACRA, the city of Aspen, Snowmass Tourism, and these 14 arts and cultural organizations. And um, so essentially it's going to look at, from the standpoint of economic impact, it's going to look at uh, economic impact of the audiences and what they spend as part of their trips to Aspen. Uh, it's going to look at economic impact from the standpoint of organizational operations, just you know, what does it take to run the Aspen Institute day to day. Uh, also looking at, to some degree, second homeowner purchase decisions. How much has arts and cultural factors influenced that decision? 
and then also looking at other factors such as what are the contributions of these organizations and other arts and cultural entities in providing educational and volunteer opportunities and other sort of opportunities for the local communities. Um, this is a year-round study. It started this past May. It'll continue through June, and so we'll be able to present results there. Uh, so far, the focus has really been on <clears throat> conducting surveys amongst those 14 different arts and cultural organizations to understand their visitor profile and what they spend. So looking forward to probably coming back several months from now to recap the results from that study. So with that, I'll turn it over to Matt. So we've got a lot to cover, and I'm going to try to go through this fairly quickly. I usually do these in about 30 minutes, and Ralph said he would hang me by my toenails if I went a hair over 12, so here we go. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about um, Colorado and, and Aspen and visitation uh, to uh, primarily Pitkin County uh, for just overall visitation, as well as how that compares a little bit to the state of Colorado. Then we're going to talk a little bit about attributed visitors. Um, so let's talk about how we do that at Arrivalist. So, um, it's kind of what Ralph said. We're somewhat of a new player on the, on, the, on the block. We haven't been around for 30 years for sure, but we have been around for about seven years. And the way that we work is that we are aggregating um, mobile location data. This is where everybody gets their phones out and starts deleting things. Um, we aggregate mobile location data across about 120 million plus users in the United States. And we do this um, primarily through apps. So a lot of our apps on our phones are passing aggregated, non-personally identifiable information um, where companies like ours can take that in an aggregate form and make sense of it, make, uh, to provide insights to destinations like Aspen or the state of Colorado. The location data that we're collecting is accurate to about 30 feet, which means I can place all of you right here in the Koch building, uh, certainly at the resort. Um, and it's a demographically balanced sample. Um, so we don't see everybody, we see an awful lot of people, but what we're doing is that we're trying to build a panel that is as representative of the U.S. population as possible in terms of demographics, where they're from, and so forth. So we have the right amount of people from Texas, my neck of the woods, as we do from Colorado and Florida and Wyoming. And of course, if you've heard of all these really uh, horrible things like see, you know, uh, cell phone companies selling data without anybody knowing about it and all these other different regulations, we're very compliant with all of that. Um, so with all of that preamble done, um, what does this allow us to do? It allows us to see visitation on a very granular level, uh, providing very, very powerful insights to destinations, uh, as well as resorts and airports and all sorts of different clients, as well as attribution. Um, where we are looking at people who are exposed to media and then arriving in the market after that. We are working um, over these last seven years with about 90 plus destinations, 40 of the states, including Colorado, many, many destinations here in Colorado. Uh, I think we're up to 12 now, um, and several other clients across a whole bunch of different other verticals. Okay, so let's get into the good stuff. So I wanted to start this presentation first, and this is courtesy of Kathy Ritter's team at the CTO. She's allowed us to use their data um, to give you some, some cool, I think, insights into what visitation here to the state of Colorado looks like, and then comparing that to Pitkin County. We don't have specific information for Aspen or Snowmass as of yet. Uh, we're going to be talking to the team there about maybe trying to figure out a way to get you this data next year. But um, for Colorado, first off, what you're gonna see is that about 60% of all the arrivals into the state of Colorado are interstate trips. Uh, these are people coming from um, outside of the state. It's also worth noting we do not include international data in this um, particular data set yet. 
Um, and then for interest rate, it's about 40%. And you can see the big story here is the average length of stay is quite different. Not surprisingly, people who are originating from within the state of Colorado spend about one day, 20 hours when they're on a trip. We define a trip across a couple of different filters, but the primary filter is someone who's going at least 50 miles from their home location and staying at least a couple of hours in a destination, at least a couple of hours away from home. So you can see there's a, not a surprising difference there. You can also see that the repeat visitation is a little bit higher in states, easier for people that live in Denver to go out and, and visit uh, within their own state. Um, out of state's about 22%. Um, total for the state, day trips, about 37%. That's gonna be primarily driven by your in-state uh, residents. And then 63% overnight. Um, and then you'll also see day of arrival. I don't think there's any big surprises here, except to say that Colorado really is blessed as a state to have relatively high percentage of Thursday and midweek arrivals compared to a lot of other states. There's many, many, many other states that would love to see 15% of their total arrivals coming in on a Thursday, a lot of states. Um, but let's talk about picking county. So within the data set that we're working in for the state of Colorado, we are also um, looking at just the um, area that you guys call home. And so let's talk a little bit about picking and, and then you'll see some, I think, things that are quite different um, from the state as a whole. First, you guys have a slightly higher, uh, and this is backed up by some of the other presenters and the data that they're seeing as well, you're seeing a higher percentage of interstate trips compared to intrastate. Um, and you're also seeing that um, these folks are spending, when they come in, um, a pretty decent amount of time in Picking County. And for those who are actually in the county and then going to other places, it's also helping the state. So the people that you're attracting, when they go to other places within the state, they're spending quite a bit more time in the state as a whole, over four days um, for those people who actually leave the county and go visit other places. So you guys are not just driving tourism for yourselves, but you're actually doing a hell of a job for everybody else in the state of Colorado as well. So gold star for that. Um, you're also seeing that um, your overnight uh, trips to day trips, pretty much in line with other data sets. And we really like to see this at Arrivalist. Um, a lot of times we work in concert with qualitative forms of research. That's survey research, the why people travel. We're very much quantitative source. We just have numbers that we're looking at and then we try to make sense of that. But really it's fun when you see two data sets that are completely different, really lining up pretty neatly in terms of day trip versus overnight. And I don't think it's anything too surprising. It's not exactly, you know, Denver's not exactly a day trip from here, I wouldn't say. Um, but then you can also see the um, arrivals are pretty well matching up. There's a hair tick up for Thursday. So you're pulling a few more people that are coming in on a Thursday for a long weekend versus the state as a whole. And I will promise you, I usually don't go through these these quick, but in 12 minutes, we've got to cover some ground. So let's talk about Colorado versus Picking County. Now, this is all good news. Um, we are looking at when people come into the market, places like New York, Los Angeles, Dallas, these are places where they're flying in and we're looking at how much time um, or, or rather what, uh, how much time they're spending in the market and what percentage um, of these markets make up visitation to Pickin versus Colorado. You can see that you're really kind of winning across the board and this is important for a couple of reasons. First, you're seeing that when people come to Pickin County, they're spending much more time from these fly markets overall than if they're just going to Colorado in general. That's a good thing. The other thing is that you're getting a much higher percentage of these visitors from New York, Los Angeles, Dallas, Chicago, Houston, than the state is as a whole. 
Someone mentioned earlier that people from Missouri, Nebraska, Kansas are not really making their way into Picking County in the sort of numbers that these fly markets are. Now, is anybody from Kansas, Nebraska, Missouri, any of those places? I, okay, <laughs> I'm only going to tick off two people here. The question you have to ask is, do you want those people? I don't know. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um, <laughs> why would I say that? Well, because <laughs> I'm very blunt, folks. Um, the reason is that you're a, a lot of places in Colorado, um, small mountain towns like yours, and a lot of other destinations that we are working with, places in California, are really having to begin to take a very tough look at sustainable tourism. They're having to look at volume versus visitor spend, and they're trying to, exactly as what was mentioned before, play that balance. And what you guys are seeing is that, right or wrong, you're pulling in greater volumes of folks from markets that are very high value. We see this across the country. When you look at visitor spend, and we don't include that in our data set, but I get to work with a lot of folks like our panel today, you see this as a universal fact. So it's a win, um, and, and at the same time, it's something to think about. Do you ever want to adjust that balance to where you have people coming from the Midwest in bigger numbers? Um, but let's talk about the seasons as well. So coming into this, as someone who um, didn't know the market as well as some of our other panel presenters, I really wanted to dive in here. And, and I'll be honest with you, I kind of wondered if summer wouldn't be much, much closer to winter in terms of your top market, at least in terms of the volume that we saw. But no, ski season still pretty much making up the bulk. And I'm assuming that's probably not a big surprise, although Summer is still a huge chunk, and then I would assume this is mud season, right? So, uh, we <laughs> no, no, it doesn't exist. No mud season. <laughs> Fortunately, I'm, I'm probably going to get docked for a few points for that. But, uh, but we do see one other thing is that ski season, when folks come here for a ski trip, or if they're just coming here in that November to April time period, that they are spending a little bit more time on average in the market. Um, than they are in other seasons. What's interesting is secret season, the time in the market really doesn't drop a whole lot compared to the fall, and it's really not that far off the pace even from summer. So the good news is that when people are choosing to come here in the off season, the shoulder seasons, they're still choosing to spend a pretty decent chunk of time. And we see in a lot of destinations, Cleveland for instance, that if you're here in the winter time in Cleveland, that people get into Cleveland and out of Cleveland just as fast as they can. Not as true in the summertime, it's very pleasant there. All right, so top markets, and I've got two minutes to go here. Um, top markets by season, you'll see not a whole lot of uh, surprises here. Ski season, you're seeing a lot of people from New York, Miami, LA by percentage. In summer, you see a little bit of a difference. People from Dallas, Houston, and DC are coming in droves. And you know, if you've ever been to Dallas, my hometown, uh, in the summertime, you'd understand why we get up here as fast as we can. So let's look at um, a little bit about attribution. Now, what we've been doing is looking at people who have visited things like the website, and then we're able to actually see those people physically arrive in the market. I'd bore you to tears if I explained how that works, technically speaking, but um, when we look at it, what we're seeing is that when people visit the Chamber website, um, we looked at two things. First, the, the volume of page views. Not a big surprise that a lot of people from Denver are visiting the website, and a lot of those people are showing up in the market. But what is kind of cool to see is that places like Los Angeles, DC, and Dallas-Fort Worth also make up um, some large shares of page views, 
but then are also showing up um, pretty healthy in terms of arrivals. So um, you see that the top three Texas markets, for instance, um, are all very heavy users of the website um, while also showing up um, in pretty decent numbers um, after having visited the website. So the good news is what that means is it kind of illustrates the importance of a good, strong DMO website that's promoting festivals and concerts and activities and all the things that are doing um, and then showing up. We're also looking at the timing of arrivals. So you'll see that um, when people are, are showing up in terms of the time of year, um, about 5% of page views are happening during kind of what we would consider ski research time periods and about 26% of the arrivals are attributed to that. It seems like a little bit more research is going on for summertime travel than winter travel, which is interesting. Ah, there you go. And then you're seeing things, we also track things like distance traveled. So when people are visiting the website and then showing up. And you'll see that um, for events, not real surprising, there's less miles traveled, although still 847 miles is a ton. Um, versus things like fall foliage, hiking trails, um, even the home page. And then you also see the difference in time to arrivals. So again, people are looking at the website for events, for instance, and then showing up within the month. Um, now, top origin markets, I'm going to finish on this pretty quickly, for paid media. So this is where the um, organization is investing its dollars and then seeing arrivals come in. Not a big surprise that Denver continues to be very important to you. We do measure Denver as a DMA. This is sort of the same way that Nielsen rates it. So it's not just the Denver Metro. It even encompasses some portions of Wyoming, believe it or not. So it's a much, much bigger area than just the Denver Metro. And then you're also seeing Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Dallas, Houston, all places that are being invested in that are also returning um, the lion's share of arrivals. The other thing is that you're seeing um, that uh, the time to arrival um, is really pretty good. Um, generally speaking, about 67% of people who are exposed to paid media are arriving within 30 days of initial exposure, which means when the organization is doing campaigns in early or late spring to influence summer travel, those, uh, that return on investment's not taking a very long time to come back to you. And so with that, I thank you for the time. I think I'm only over by about 30 seconds. Hopefully no hanging by fingernails. Thank you. Thank you everybody for coming and thanks to Ralph and all of our presenters and being partners in data collection. I'm Eliza Voss. For those who don't know me, I'm the Director of Marketing for the Aspen Chamber. Happy to be here today to take you through some of our 2019 successes and initiatives for 2020. Just as a little reminder, ACRA has been destination marketing on behalf of the community since 2000. In 2010, we successfully passed the lodging tax to 1.5%. And today we're sitting with a budget of about 2.8 million, which I think we can all agree as a sign of a healthy and established tourism economy. The work we do as destination promoters is touching all aspects of the community, both directly and indirectly. So we're involved in conversations surrounding transportation, both into and around the destination, as well as, of course, employee housing, gray market connection. And in a mature destination like ours, this means we're well poised to shift some of our attention away from inspiring travel to balancing the quality of life with economic benefit, similar to the themes that Ralph touched on in his presentation. 
So really being intentional with our work as a destination steward, this is how we can quite literally shift gears from marketing to a management organization. Why, you might ask, is managing our destination so important? With travel and population growing worldwide, we are seeing destinations on a macro level being loved to death. And that coupled with the social media effect and everybody just doing it for the gram um, are making some real impacts in our destination. So on the left, we have what the Instagram influencer wants you to believe Conundrum Hot Springs looks like. On the right is what the reality was prior to the US Forest Service implement, implementing the permit system. And that's just a really real example of why it's so important to manage our assets that we have here in Aspen. A couple more trends at a macro level are that today's traveler is demanding sustainable initiatives. So it's no longer a nice to have, but a must have. And the visitor experience should be positive and authentic. So um, you can see here a Polish motorcycle group that came through this summer and they're standing with our Aspen city limit sign and our visitor center ladies were fielding questions all the live long day about how people could get their picture taken with the dumb and dumber welcome to Aspen sign. <laughs> this sign does not exist. So we got, went ahead and created an opportunity for these people to have a um, kind of sense of arrival and get their, get their moment here in the sun. So with these trends ap appearing on a global level, destinations around the world are taking advantage of the opportunity to move towards management management and sustainability. For example, Travel Oregon established the Forever Fund, and that's a, a fundraising effort for both tourists and locals to make long-term impacts in their state to continue to keep it as a good place for people to live and work and visit. And as Coloradans, we're very lucky that the Colorado Tourism Office, one of our industry partners, created a roadmap for the entire tourism industry within the state, not just their office. So what do destination management and sustainability look like in Aspen? First, let's just take a snapshot of where we are in 2019. We're seeing some great improvement year over year in sales, lodging, occupancy, and average daily rate year to date. So we can see we're not in a position where we really need to be going after people. They, they want to come to Aspen and now our job is to sustain that interest and transition from marketing to management and really be intentional about the experience the visitor can have when they come into our area. As we started looking at destination management and sustainability across the globe and plans that different destinations were putting into place, we really identified four themes that were appearing across the industry and those were research, collaboration, dispersion, and education. And we really focused our work into under those four lenses. And that's both for 2019 and as we look ahead into 2020 as well. Research, I think we really knocked that out of the park this morning. Well, quite a lot of data collection based on Arrivalist, which was that that's the technology that allows you to tag your media and then actually track visitors once they come into market. We didn't really touch on how creepy that is, but <laughs> there, there you have it. AirDNA, pulling back that gray market cover and seeing what's happening in the rent-by-owner market. How is that affecting our locals in the long-term rental pool for employee housing, et cetera? Dusty Metrics, of course, our long-term industry partner for occupancy and ADR rates surrounding hotels. 
the Summer Intercept Survey, which is an every other year program, and this year was a partnership with Aspen Skiing Company's new data team, as well as RRC. Uh, tourism Sentiment Survey is something we did not have a panelist speak on that, but we are in year two of a three-year commitment with Destination Think, and that's really monitoring all the social conversations that are happening out there in the internet universe surrounding Aspen. So, at the conclusion of the three years, which would be 2020, we'll be able to assess where we are as a destination and are we delivering on the promise to our visitor? And if not, how can we improve upon that? And of course, the Arts and Culture Economic Impact Study, which will conclude in June. Collaboration has always been a core tenant for doing business in Aspen, and here are some of the ways we're doing it through the lens of destination management. We have quite a few legacy partnerships. The city of Aspen, of course, as contracted partners to deliver destination marketing services for our community. The Aspen Skiing Company and their investment in X Games, we are always a partner in that. It's a nice nod to our skiing heritage and an investment in our future. Snowmass Tourism is a partner of ours in our international PR efforts, as well as a great catch for any citywide group overflow that we have. Lodging partners, there's many of you in the room. We really couldn't do what we do without your support because we are constantly hosting media, familiarization trips, and special events in your properties. So we really, really appreciate the support you all provide. We meet with an arts and cultural nonprofit groups about four times a year, and that's in response to the fact that many of their programming are not as obvious as Aspen Mountain jutting out of the middle of town. So we want to make sure we're supporting the arts and cultural efforts. And this year we did, for the first time, a cooperative advertising opportunity in 5280, which is right here on the left. And then, of course, air service sustainability. I think some of um, David's slides spoke nicely to the increases in people flying into Aspen, and really our gain is Eagle's loss, I think. Um, and it's really important that, in, that as part of a sustainable initiative, we've been at, able to add nonstop flights to our flight program, which is one of the most impactful things that when traveling via air you can do to reduce your impact. So less takeoffs and landings is always good for the environment. And also, thank you to Bill Tomsich for providing this data, but our flight program, which is also a collaboration between Ski Company, Pitkin County, City of Aspen, and Snowmass Tourism, has really focused on extending the length of our flights into the shoulder seasons, and we've seen great gains in May and October, which aligns nicely with our initiatives as well. Some other collaborations, so new faces, are the White River National Forest and our messaging surrounding the best way to the Maroon Bells. And I'll just show our video in case anybody forgets what the best way to the Maroon Bells. Visiting the Maroon Bells. If you've come for a sign, crying, and shouting, then drive your own car. But if you'd like to save your breath for the breathtaking views, hop on the public shuttle and visit midweek when there are fewer crowds. Don't get marooned outside the Maroon Bells. 
So we added that video a couple years ago, and then this year we edited our content on the, on the Maroon Bells webpage to really be digestible and really short and snappy, and we've seen page views increase to that webpage 400% this year. So people are really accessing that, and we hope to be spreading the news about the best way to visit the Bells midweek and on the bus. Colorado Tourism Office is a longtime industry partner. In 2017, they launched their Leave No Trace campaign. And this year, they offered the opportunities for destinations around the state to join them in those efforts. So ACRA joined as a tier two partner, which means they provided training to all of our visitor center staff on the Care for Colorado principles. And the ladies and gentlemen in our four visitor centers around the community have interacted with about 130,000 visitors to date this year and so they're just disseminating that information directly to those guests as well as having the care for colorado principles posted on the physical structures as well the colorado tourism office also offers opportunities for our group sales team to train international tour operators in the market so they really give them the best tools to sell aspen as a destination to their clients directly Bauhaus 100 Aspen, here we are, right here in a buyer-designed campus, and we were a sponsor of the Bauhaus 100 Aspen, which was celebrating 100 years of the German design school and its influence in Aspen with Walter Pepke inviting Herbert Bayer to be basically the architect and designer for Aspen. That was spearheaded by Lisa Ballinger, heavily supported by the Aspen Institute and various arts and cultural organizations. It was a great community-wide celebration from the Winter School sculptures all the way through the ball in, uh, in the, at the Wheeler Apple House in June. And we're really proud as a sponsor of this event for the PR coverage that we gained through our team of, at Promo Communications. We landed in Monocle, New York Times, Hemispheres, Departures, and that really speaks to the authenticity of Aspen as a destination, that we have these huge cultural roots, and it was being celebrated the world over by, as a result of these PR efforts. So really pleased with that. Another t new initiative in 2019 was the collaboration with City of Aspen and the Aspen Ascent Symposium, which was born out of the previous City Council's uphill economy goals. And the symposium really provided us with an opportunity to participate in panel discussions surrounding our rich heritage as a ski destination and how we can carry that history forward with a commitment to preserve our environment and potentially develop tactful programs and bring industry back into Aspen with the uphill economy goal. And in the similar vein, we really want to honor our mountain biking roots as well and our enthusiasts. And we're working together with Snowmass Tourism, the Glenwood Springs Chamber, and Aspen Skiing Company to hopefully achieve gold level status in 2020. And that would be important because Roaring Fork Mountain Bike Association also has international influence and it speaks to our quality and our commitment to sustain and celebrate our destination-worthy and locally serving trails on an international level. So more to come in January with that. The third bucket we've really identified is dispersion. And what does that mean to ACRA? That means we can pr promote 
shoulder seasons, extend the season, perhaps alternative ways to recreate during the eight peak weeks of summer, and of course, suggesting midweek versus weekend travel whenever possible. In the spring, that means we have launched our secret season. Shh, don't tell anybody about secret season, which is May through early June. We're targeting the Denver and Front Range because that's a great market for us to come during that time. And here's an example of, it, of the campaign being executed on the RTD Green Line, which has about 3.5 million impressions in downtown Denver. We also have this campaign display on TripAdvisor as well as social media, and I'll show you this video shortly about which is how it was executed on Facebook. And the overall secret season campaign received about 2.1 million impressions, so we're letting a lot of people in on our little secret here about how to enjoy Aspen in a way that is not necessarily rate-driven, but we believe that the spring has something to offer for the traveler as well. It's a full, complete experience, and you get access to Aspen like never before in the um, summer season. So here, without further ado, is our big secret. <laughs> So our group sales department is also mirroring our efforts to extend the season and we had a huge win this year with that extension with welcoming Earth's Call, a large group, into the resort in May, supported by having air service available in May, as well as um, the cherry on top was really that this group had similar goals as our community with climate action in place. So we're really thrilled to have our leisure traveler and our group sales kind of mirroring the same efforts. In peak season, dispersion looks a little different. There's tons of people in town and our goal is to get them out into different ways to recreate. So alternatives to the maroon bells, lesser known hiking trails, and this type of content on our website is seeing 20% increased time on page, so people are finding that content useful and they want to kind of get the insider knowledge of where else they can recreate. And then we also advertise our robust arts and cultural calendar on the WeCycle stations. This has kind of twofold dispersion tactic. One is to get people um, out of their cars and onto two wheels, and then also to take advantage of the people that are in town and kind of promote the arts and cultural offerings that they might not be aware of. So fill those seats for our arts and cultural um, partners as well. And if spring is secret season, I think that September weekends are no secret to the general public. So we're trying to mitigate that congestion and to do that we promote midweek getaways in the fall. And here's a graph that just illustrates how the peaks and valleys in September aren't as deep in in 2019 as they once were in 2011, which we can really attribute to being intentional with those marketing messages, having extended air service, and celebrating what Mother Nature gives us each September. And when we talk about shifting to a management organization, education is really one of those most important themes. It's the final theme in our four buckets. And who are we educating? We're educating everyone, ourselves, the community, the visitor, and our first step in doing so was getting accredited with Destinations International Accreditation Program. 
And I like to joke that it was my work baby and the gestational period was nearly as long as my <laughs> carrying the actual baby. But we got, we got approved before maternity leave, so this was a huge win. And this step really proves that we're ready to kind of shift from inspiring travelers to managing our S assets. And one of the first steps we took to managing our assets was educating the public with our how-to campaign, which is been going for about two years and we continue to add content and evolve that content. Um, it seems that as we evolve the content, the general public kind of goes the opposite direction. So we had to add content this year on what to do if you see a moose. The spoiler alert there is don't pet the moose. Um, and we also added some winter content, which I'll show you shortly, but all in general, all how-to content page views increased 44% in 2019. And this was our first foray, foray into winter content, which is how to carry your skis. And the ladies that work at the Pavilion Visitor Center across from Paradise Bakery maintain that this might be the most important piece of content ACRA has ever put together. So, How to Aspen, carrying your skis. If you want to at least look like you know what you're doing, you need to start with learning to carry your skis correctly. Not quite. <laughs> nope. If you're waiting in line, keep your skis out of the way so you don't hit anyone around you. And once you're out away from crowds, just keep both skis together and prop them up with your shoulder, like so. Hit the slopes and not the people around you. So hopefully our visitors will help Dinah over there at the pavilion by carrying their skis correctly this year. Also part of the how-to campaign is the Aspen Pledge which is really an actionable item for our visitors to pledge to explore Aspen responsibly. This year we continued distribution with that at our local hotels, local advertising and placement within the visitor centers. Um, our pledges increased on the website 120% this year, but I do have a question. Who has not taken the pledge here in the room? <laughs> <laughs> We can go ahead and do an abbreviated version. So I pledge to explore Aspen responsibly. I will venture into the great unknown while staying on the known trails. I will take awesome selfies without endangering my selfie. And I will not ski in jeans. So PR coverage for that was also very successful. Um, we landed spots in the Washington Post, New York Times, and Travel Age West thanks to our um, partners at Promo Communications, and that's really um, kind of illustrating that sustainable travel is really a macro trend and lots of people are kind of adopting this. Social media. As a travel promoter, we're definitely part of this social media problem. There's really a reason people's Instagram feeds are filled with aspirational photos and jealousy-inducing blocks of pictures of Tuscany and the Northern Lights. So this summer, we consciously made a shift to use our social media as an educational tool, launching the Tag Responsibly Take the Aspen Pledge campaign. And this actually came out of part of the discussion at the Aspen Ascent Conference as a suggestion for us. So we were really excited to put that into play. And that's 
a way to protect kind of the wild places or the lesser known locations by using the geotag, tag responsibly, take the Aspen pledge. And it also has that nice call to action in the geotag. And I nearly fell off my chair on maternity leave when I saw Simi Hamilton, our local um, Olympian, used the tag. So it's not just us. The general public is adopting it, and we're, we're really thrilled about that. As always, mirroring our leisure efforts, the group sales team is positioning itself as the best first po point of contact for meetings, events, and groups in Aspen. As the local experts, they're able to educate the groups who are interested in coming into town on better price points or time of year that would meet that group's needs. And we're really thrilled at how much local business that group's team is able to refer to our member businesses. We have supported about 1.8 million in group lodging into the destination this year, which is a huge achievement for our group. And finally, even the best content in the world isn't that great if nobody can find it. So how are we distributing this content? We've got some old school methods, seasonal brochures that are out and about in the community, as well as the welcome centers around Colorado. There's 10 of those that are run by the state. And new school, we have added some artificial intelligence technology to our website. You'll see Diana, the real live version on the left. And in the middle, we have the digital Diana. She's our chat bot on aspenchamber.org. And her job, this, this year we tasked her with increasing our newsletter subscription rate. We used to collect about five new newsletter subscriptions each day. She's up to about 27 or 28 a day, which is excellent. And kind of to marry that with getting the, the content out, we redesigned our newsletter so that the emails Diana is sending out really are the most beautiful, and we've seen incredible open rate for those emails of 68%. Industry standard is about 20%, and the click-through click rate from the opened emails is 44%. So we are spreading the news as best we can. And that concludes our 2019 initiatives, and as we look toward 2020, we'll really be focusing a lot of our work under those same buckets. 2020 through 2023 is going to be a new strategic plan for ACRA. So we're in the midst of drafting some super high level goals. And then we'll use these four themes to inform the tactics underneath those goals. And we'll just go through some of those ideas that we have for 2020. Of course, research will continue with that. Uh, we can't measure can't manage what you can't measure, so we're happy to continue measuring with the partners we spoke about, AirDNA, Arrivalist, Arts and Culture, Destimetrics, and Tourism Sentiment. And we're also exploring some new vendors. AirSage is a vendor that's able to track uh, visitors' movements within a destination. Again, super creepy, but it exists, so why not use it? Is the day visitor behaving differently from an overnight visitor? Where are, they, where are we seeing them visit the Maroon Bells? Independence Pass, et cetera. VisaView is a data collection based on credit card spend. So we could track how much out of town credit cards are spending in our restaurants and shops and how that's impacting their, those restaurants and shops ability to donate back into the community. So really looking at the full picture of the balance of the quality of life as well as our traveler impact. And then Destination Next, if you were at this presentation last year, we heard from Destination Next and how that was a public sentiment survey. So kind of gathering where we are 
on a community level and seeing what we need to do to implement a tourism master plan. So those are all options for us looking at 2020. We will continue our collaboration with the White River National Forest and are pleased to be in conversations with the management group looking at a reservation system for fall peak weekends in, Mar in the Maroon Bells Wilderness. And that would really mirror the relationship the Glenwood Springs Chamber has with the Hanging Lake permit application process. As I mentioned, there's a lot of buzz around pledges in mountain town destinations. So we've approached the Pledge for the Wild, which is a collection of like-minded destinations. And we'd like to partner with them to really elevate our message and get that out further into the marketplace. We'll continue with our strategic event partnerships with Aspen Skiing Company and the X Games, really building upon our how-to campaign and probably creating some content around how-to X Games as well as elevating events like Winter School, which are a great value add to the visitor experience as well as a community benefit. Transportation, we will continue that partnership with the Air Service Sustainability Group. And that's really more important now than ever as we're in the ASA visioning process and how important we've seen such great results from having year-round airlift into the community. And communications in good times and in bad is really important for us to collaborate with. I hope you've all enjoyed, and if you haven't, tune in on KSPN to the Chamber Chat, which we do every week and that every other week, sorry, um, talking about occupancy and how that might affect your business as well as anything else going on at a community level. And then as we shift our lens into more of a management versus marketing, we're really looking at getting a seat at the table for crisis communication. So there's a group obviously in place um, for any crisis in the upper upper valley there's a upper valley management team but we need to get our seat at the table because we need to pull any advertising about hiking in the woods if the forest is on fire and those are learnings that we've had two years ago with the basalt fire and we just want to be a, prepared and get ahead of that so get our get a seat at the table for those conversations and we have a direct direct line of communication to member businesses if disaster were to strike so collaboration efforts what does dispersion look like in 2020? From a pu public relations standpoint, we can shift our messaging to target digital nomads. Those are people that do not need to be at a desk Monday through Friday. So why not invite them to come work from the gondola in Aspen? Also on a macro level, solo traveler is really something big. And Aspen has a lot of opportunities for a solo traveler to get immersed in the authentic Aspen experience. Tuesday Cruise Day, the Buttermilk Uphill Social, in addition to the City of Aspen Park Run. So there are great opportunities for a solar traveler to come in market and feel like they belong. We'll also do targeted marketing after some niche markets, so fly fishing in the spring, and really go after some like-minded travelers. So instead of creating tourists, we'll create some temporary locals. We will, prote we will protect your La Hosteria bar menu special, but we. I think the idea of a temporary local is more appealing than just a quick in and out tourist. Content creation, we can be really nimble with this. For example, this year when Maroon Bells and Independence Pass opened late, we created content surrounding lower elevation hikes and distributed that to all of our hotel partners. So we will always be really nimble with what the, the season or the situation demands. We can create content around that and 
create diversion tactics. The downtown core in Aspen is a built environment and it can handle the crowds. I promise you our shop owners want those revolving doors of people in and out of their, of their establishments. So we partner with our membership team on 7908 reasons to come to town and really we would like to elevate that campaign in 2020 and make sure we're doing the best to serve both the locals and the visitors in that. We're doing some advanced promotion, further in advance than we've ever done before. On the right, you'll see they are called spectaculars. They are spectacular in Times Square. They're running right now, and it's the earliest promotion we've ever done of spring. So I'll, it's hard to see, but live from Times Square. So it's a 15 second waterfall video um, in Times Square promoting Aspen as a destination for spring, summer, fall. And finally, our sales team will continue to push shoulder seasons and need periods and promote the best way to enjoy Aspen as a group. Our final piece is education. Looking at 2020, aspenchamber.org is poised to relaunch with a new look within the next month. So we'll be kicking off 2020 with a fresh, clean way to distribute content and educate our guests as the best first point of contact. The Defy Ordinary campaign will evolve in 2020 to really mirror some of those sustainability initiatives that we've talked about. We'll continue to leverage social media as an educational tool, pushing out how to the pledge and tag responsibly campaign. We will do a little shift from marketing only in our feeder markets to educating those folks that are already in town. So we see that the eight peak weeks of summer are pretty busy, so we should reach the people when they're in town with that how-to campaign and the pledge. And our group sales team is providing corporate social responsibility opportunities to the groups that they are hosting in market as a way for them to give back to our destination. And that can look like working with Lift Up or the Roaring Fork Outdoor Volunteers. So that concludes our 2020 programming. Oh, sorry. How could I neglect that we have recently hit 100,000 uh, followers on Instagram. So that's a great place for us to be educating those people um, out in the world. So that concludes our initiatives and I do need to, uh, uh, I'll run through the budget unless anybody wants to talk about the programming first. Okay. This is the income budget draft. It has been approved by the Marketing Advisory Committee, and we are looking for approval at the end of this meeting from the Aspen Lodging Association as well as the ACRA Board of Directors. So the appropriated number from the city of Aspen is about 2.9 million, and that is really being driven by rate, not necessarily forecasted occupancy increase. It is an increase of 3% over 2018. In 2020, we'll see the Lodge Commission sunset and we'll bring in a group participation fee. And that's really as a result of speaking with our lodging partners, as well as third party meeting planners and bringing us more in line with where the industry sits to get rid of the commission structure, but have a participation fee which will support group sales initiatives. 
Our co-op funds come in from our partnership with Snowmass Tourism, as well as some Colorado Tourism Cooperative advertising and, um, opportunities, which brings us to the first time ever for a budget with a three in front of it. 3.07 million for 2020 is the draft income line. And for expenses, we'll see a slight increase in payroll as we hope to add it administrative support for the department. Operating expenses go up slightly with the cost of doing business, as well as now with our commitment to, the, as the organization got certified with Destinations International, we now have some staff that need to be certified as well to kind of augment those efforts. Marketing goes up with our support of special events, as well as the evolution of the Defy Ordinary campaign to bring that in line with our sustainability initiatives. Partnerships will go up slightly. That reflects our partnership with Aspen Skiing Company and X Games, the City of Aspen audit position, as well as air service sustainability. Public relations, although it looks down, it's actually flat. It's just reflective of the international market and our exchange rate with our PR contracts in those international markets. Website, we had a huge investment this year for the redesign. Once that's launched, we'll go back into a kind of a sustainability campaign for that so the line item is down slightly. And research, as we mentioned, is a huge investment for ACRA. It's just down slightly because of our summer intercept research is an every other year program. So that brings us to a spend of 3.07 million. Well, thank you so much. As a reminder, we need the ALA and the board to stay active.